you know, and we should keep in mind that uh, the Chinese military in 15, 2015, 2016 reorganized uh, and they created the strategic support force specifically to put space and cyber together because when they look at their challenge, mainly the United States, uh, those are two sides of the same coin. Uh, if you can use cyber to cut off your space access, it doesn't matter how cool your satellites are. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, Downlink listeners. This episode was intended to be the fourth and final episode of a month-long series looking at the space industrial base. The focus was supposed to be on China's space industry. But then there was some curious news. The New York Times reported that U.S. intelligence agencies and Microsoft discovered that a Chinese state-sponsored hacker group called Volt Typhoon installed some mysterious code on the computer networks of Guam's telecommunications systems and critical infrastructure. So here's the connection to defense. You see... Guam is a U.S. territory in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's closer to Taiwan than Hawaii. It's about one-fifth the size of the state of Rhode Island, and it's where you'll find Anderson Air Force Base, U.S. Naval Base Guam, and the Marines' newly established Camp Blas. There are roughly 22,000 Americans in uniform there. It's even got a pier for nuclear-powered submarines. You can think of this sovereign strip of land like a forward operating base that the U.S. uses to project military power into the Far East. It also just got hit this week by Typhoon Mawar. Now, the Air Force Base and the Navy Base both have satellite telecommunication systems and the Guam Tracking Station, which the U.S. Space Force operates for commanding and controlling satellites. I reached out to the U.S. Space Command, the U.S. Space Force, the Space Operations Command, and the Defense Information Systems Agency, While I have communicated with some very nice public affairs officers, none have been able to confirm or deny whether or not this mysterious hacker code from China is present in Department of Defense satellite telecommunication systems. So I got together with two of the best China space and U.S. military experts I know, Chris Stone and Brendan Mulvaney, to talk about Volt Typhoon, China's intentions, and the current state of play in U.S. military space policy. Here's our conversation. Hi, Chris, Brendan. It's been way too long since you two were last on the podcast. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, super excited. It has been a while, so it's uh, it's good to be back doing this. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I have to say it's great to be back as well because last week I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I have to say I have been missing my own bed for some time. So before we get started today, we need to do some introductions. And Chris, why don't you start? Sure. I am uh, Christopher Stone. I am Senior Fellow for Space Deterrent Studies at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies in Washington, D.C., and uh, I'm a former special assistant for a deputy assistant secretary of defense for space policy, and I've been working uh, space policy and strategy for nearly 20 years, and uh, looking forward to the discussion. And Brendan? So I'm Brendan Mulvaney. Uh, currently, I am the director of the United States Air Force's China Aerospace Studies Institute, 
Um, before that, uh, I was uh, in the Marine Corps for 25 years as a Cobra pilot, and I lived in uh, and studied at the Fudan University in Shanghai, China. That's how I came to the, the China beat. And haven't you just come back from Japan? I mean, yeah. what were you doing there? And I mean, like, just come back from Japan, like you just dropped your bags at the door. Yep, literally uh, right off the uh, right off the airplane and uh, right back here. So, no, we had a couple weeks of uh, meetings with our uh, Japanese counterparts. Uh, we really went all over uh, all over Tokyo uh, and had some great meetings. We met with uh, oh the National Institute of uh, Defense Studies. We went with uh, the Seventh Air Wing. Uh, we met with uh, several other people, Camp Zama. Uh, and like I said, just uh, working on the alliance, trying to figure out how we can help them and how we can uh, do uh, research together on Chinese aerospace writ large. So it was it was a fantastic trip, really busy, but uh, but very rewarding. Oh, come on. Did you meet with anybody who does anything with space? This is a space podcast. That's true. We uh, we were very fortunate. So uh, in the small world that is the JASDAF, uh, we happen to know the current commander of the Japanese Space Operations Group. Uh, and then that just got stood up, uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. And so we went, uh, that was a little bit of a, you know, Tokyo is a massive city, so it was still in Tokyo, but you know, hour and a half to get to the other side of Tokyo, but went out to space ops group. Uh, we got the inbrief from them. We met the staff. Uh, we got to go down and see their uh, space situational awareness center. Uh, and actually, uh, yeah, I had a great, great visit with them and it's really impressive, uh, how fast they've, how far they've come so fast. So, uh, and they're continuing to continuing to grow and and hopefully uh, continue to leverage the uh, the increase in budget that the JASDAF and the uh, uh, the self defense stores in general is getting. So uh, yeah, it's we supposed to double we in there. like five years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. So they went from a handful of people and no building to uh, you know uh, dozens of people and a building and an SSA, and now they're going to have two sites. Uh, and in fact, uh, General Uchikura was there visiting. Uh, about uh, two hours before we got there. So definitely getting some good highlights. All right. Now, well, I initially brought you guys back on the podcast to talk about the latest in space in China. There's a bit of news that's bubbling up and has the potential to be quite big. And that's the Volt Typhoon cyber intrusion. Now, the New York Times' David Sanger broke the story and he reports that a mysterious computer code has been found to be appearing in telecommunication systems in Guam and elsewhere in the United States. Now, Guam is 212 square miles, and it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, roughly 4,000 miles west of Hawaii. And because it's a U.S. territory, it also is home to Anderson Air Force Base, the Guam Tracking Station, and a variety of satellite communication systems used by the Air Force and the Navy, which also has a base there. So when I take all of this together, and that's just me, you know, the military ins installations, the remoteness of the island, the fact that Sanger writes about telecommunications, my first thought instinctually goes to satellite telecommunications, which includes, you know, computers and a ground segment. So gentlemen, besides cell phone service, what is the telecommunications infrastructure mix on Guam? Is this, you know, Volt Typhoon thing something space related or not? <laughs> All right, I'll jump in. Uh, so uh, Guam, as you as you mentioned, an important uh, location uh, for the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, although you know, obviously, a long ways from play, uh, from places they do have fiber. 
Uh, right. So there are interstice cables that are running there. Uh, and obviously a lot of it goes through space, uh, as you would imagine, both civilian and military. Uh, so there's a full mix on Guam. Uh, it's a pretty busy place looking to grow in importance in the coming years. Uh, so I've uh, only read what's out there publicly available in the, you know, in the article you mentioned and other things. But uh, it does look like it's a software code that depending on how it gets implemented, uh, you know, could in fact uh, affect a range of telecommunications uh, there on Guam. So, and I think that's really why it was so important because of the, the breadth of, of the penetration, the, the depth of the penetration and the breadth of the things uh, that it could impact. I'll just jump in and add, um, I think one of the other things that caught my attention in, in the articles uh, was the phrase critical infrastructure. And the reason why is because um, one of the few things that uh, was really pretty good about the space priorities framework is that it mentions that the space infrastructure in orbit and on the ground is is pretty well linked into critical infrastructure, both of a defense variety and a societal economic variety. And so because of, of Guam being a pretty large hub in the Pacific for the United States and even some of its allies and partners uh, for both, you know, the ability to communicate and command and control forces to uh, just standard communications across the, the pond, if you will. Uh, because of that, and I think it is a, a, a good thing to be concerned about, especially, uh, you know, as they mentioned, pipelines and things of that sort that could possibly be taken down, which which are linked to GPS and other things for timing signals and things of that sort. But at the, at the same time, I mean, this this stuff is, is just part of, unfortunately, what we get to deal with uh, in, in this time. And if, if you guys remember, I think it was 2021 or so when the the Russians, I believe it was, um, hacked into one of our pipelines on the East Coast, and pretty much locked up a lot of uh, of the economy, created a a price increase that was crazy, um, just sort of just to get everybody's attention that this is something that can happen and and happen fairly easily. So it's a lot of work to defend against these things, and I'm happy to see that they they've announced it, so it's not a uh, a surprise to people. You know, both of you know Chinese strategy, and this mysterious code, at, at least according to the reports, seems to be something of an espionage operation. To understand how some U.S. critical infrastructures work, you know, what do you think the intent here is? I mean, it was actually found, and a lot of times this stuff isn't found. And if it is found, you know, some people have proffered to me that it's actually a signal that's, you know, telling us that perhaps we can't be sure about our telecommunication systems. I mean, what do you guys think of that? Is there a message here? I don't know about that. Uh, you know, these intrusions happen every day. Again, uh, some are found, some are not, some are publicized, some are not. I think it was great that, uh, you know, this one was just to kind of illustrate to people uh, the nature of the challenge that we face and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, people act, uh, different countries act differently uh, in cyber ways, right? North Korea uses cyber to steal uh, billions of dollars to keep their missile program going. Uh, the Russians kind of like to go in and try to break things. The Chinese tend to be, you know, and obviously there's overlapping of all these, but the Chinese tend to be more for espionage and, and systems analysis to understand how things work. Uh, you know, and we should keep in mind that uh, the Chinese military in 15, 2015, 2016 reorganized uh, and they created the strategic support force specifically to put space and cyber together, because when they look at their challenge, mainly the United States, uh, those are two sides of the same coin. 
if you can use cyber to cut off your space access, it doesn't matter how cool your satellites are. Uh, and the same is, uh, the reverse is true, right? If you can use space, uh, you can cut off space, well, that is going to have a huge impact on cyber because like you let off with, Guam is a long way away from anything. And a lot of our cyber capabilities rely on space communications. And that's specifically why I'm not saying the SSF had anything to do with this particular one, but that's, you know, the Chinese mindset. That's that's exactly why they created the SSF in the first place. So it would make sense that across the Chinese system, that's uh, that's kind of their outlook. Yeah, and I would I would also add the the fact that you know as as as, as you mentioned, Brendan, with the the importance of space for the Chinese and and their understanding of of space to be a vulnerability, a critical vulnerability of ours that they can exploit, and hopefully slow down not only terrestrial response operations and communications, but also um, space operations that that give us advantages and things that we rely so much upon. And when I was reading through this, the the thing that came into my mind was their their concept of system destruction, where they, instead of just focusing on on one missile shot or some laser shots and even a multi-layered attack architecture, as they like to say that they have in the in the space and counter space world, but you know, as seen with with Starlink and, and some of the some of the reports that have come out about their view of that. That they're they're basically doing what I think is nodal analysis of sorts. They're, they're they're looking for further places to exploit in times of conflict, um, and and you know vulnerabilities that can possibly be, you know, enable them to have advantages or uh, or or to prevent us from gaining advantage, and if that means you know threatening some homeland activities. Uh, and infrastructure just to show that they can. I mean, that's something that creates a psychological impact as well as a a constructive economic impact. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to shoot and kill stuff, although they definitely reserve the right and have the means to do so. But but they just want to have the means to, to have the, the escalation dominance ability if they decide to do so and and and, and for a deterrent role as well. So they, they have a, a proactive deterrent mindset where if they see a need that they can take something out or down for a little while, then and 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 that will achieve their their aim, then they'll they reserve the right to do that. So I think this is all part of that that same strategic viewpoint, and I think it's something worth watching. So let's get to something that we really do know, and that's what you, Chris, think about the Space Force's deterrent strategy. You recently wrote a piece in the Space Review. What's sticking in your craw? Well, I'm going to start with the positive stuff so that people don't think I'm Mr. Negative. But um, so as I mentioned earlier, there there have been some some really good rhetorical changes with the current administration's uh, discussion of of the Space Force and and U.S. Space Command and and having a combat ready force as as the chief of space operations likes to say. Um, hearing the Secretary of the Air Force speak about the need for hard kill and soft kill capabilities and not just resiliency and proliferated you know constellations and all the same essential buzzwords we've been hearing for the last decade plus, I think that was good. The confusing thing is, is while the service and the combatant command are pursuing or at least trying to pursue the capabilities we need to be able to match or surpass the what the Chinese have been um, working on deploying and testing per open source documents, such as the ODNI's Worldwide Threat Assessment that's published every year, um, is the fact that when you have the, the senior policy leaders in the White House and in the Department of Defense giving public addresses that basically gives a mixed message 
um, that's not very helpful from a deterrence standpoint. And with, you know, phrases like, you know, we hope that these things will deter or peaceful coexistence is the goal. And just like everything has always been in air, land, and sea, which, you know, there's so many historical inaccuracies in a lot of these speeches that have come out of the space uh, symposium last month that I wrote that, you know, it's really it's really great that to have a, a positive view of the future, but it's very important to understand the adversarial viewpoint and not just expect them to to think the way you do. And it's mirror imaging and assuming that is pretty dangerous. And as a result of that, I wrote the article that basically went through a few of the comments that, you know, if, if we're really going to try for the stuff that the Secretary of the Air Force and the CSO are pushing for, which I agree they need, um, you know, having having a, a policy leader from the Pentagon and others basically speak of space as an enabler only and talk about hope and things instead of, you know, concrete warfighting capabilities that can actively deter or prevail in a conflict, space, you know, to space, from space, things of that sort. And also given, you know, the the new additions that have that have created consternation in the in the building, meaning the Pentagon that a defense policy board had been uh, convened a few months ago to discuss, such as the space-to-ground fractional orbital bombardment with a hypersonic glide vehicle and and the ground-to-space ASATs and then other fun stuff they're doing with co-orbitals. And, and as I mentioned, the system destruction where they'll use cyber and other multi-layer things to treat proliferated LEO constellations as one target instead of many, which kind of defeats the purpose of why we were pursuing those in the first place. I think all that... It would have been great, a lot better if if the policy leaders would would match with what the services are doing, because obviously they can't go beyond what the policy restraints give them. And if if that happens, that's gonna that's gonna not you know help us get where we need to go. So that's why I essentially wrote what I did to remind people of there's a reality that has to be faced here. And I think the SecF and the CSO seem to understand that. And I just hope that that OSD and the White House will will hop on board. Well, what is that reality? I mean, Brendan, I mean, when we think about deterrence, I mean, what would deter China in space? I mean, what would it, what would stick in their mind and say, right, okay, here's the red line, and that's just not a place we should go? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, and if I had an answer to it, I'd go to Wall Street and make a million bucks on it. Uh, I think the answer <laughs> is that the Chinese see what we're able to do in space uh, from a military point of view and from an economic point of view. Right. When bullets are not flying, space gets you a lot of good stuff, a lot of goodness. And that's why they are the number two space power and are full steam ahead, because they want when there's no conflict. They want part of that. However, many, many trillions. And we can argue, you know, the Europeans think it's one number. We think it's another number. The Chinese think it's an, who cares? It's a lot of money that's going to be made uh, over the coming decades in space. And the Chinese want a big part of that. Uh, the other thing is that. You know, should China go uh, go to war with or have a conflict with anybody other than the United States, they will be able to make use of all the cool toys that we've been able to and have been so successful against all of our other other adversaries that we've done. Right. And so that's that's exactly what they're looking for. I think at this point, uh, the Chinese believe that they uh, we are still more dependent on space to fight in their backyard than they are. Uh, and that's what makes me nervous. And that's what. Uh, you know, God forbid we need to avoid a conflict at all costs, hopefully. Um, not at all costs, but we need to try to avoid a conflict as much as possible. Um, but uh, when it comes down to it, the Biden administration has made a big shift from the early days to current days. To Chris's point, not enough uh, and not uh, a universal shift. But and again, 
speaking not as representative Cassie, the United States Air Force, U.S. government right here, personal opinion only. Um, but uh, they've done a good job and we need to continue that way because the Chinese absolutely are thinking about war in space. They're thinking about conflict. They're thinking kinetic, non-kinetic, uh, cyber, you know, all the means you can think of. And they're developing uh, equal uh, uh, countermeasures, sorry, equal uh, measures and countermeasures to everything that we have and are probably going at it more aggressively than, than we are at this point. So that's that's what we're facing. Well, let me just follow with that, Brendan. You know, you've been watching and researching and writing about China for years. You've been a student there in Shanghai. And the China Aerospace Studies Institute recently published a thorough paper on China-Russia space cooperation. You know, is China developing warfighting capabilities because it believes that war in space is something that will happen? And I mean this from the Chinese perspective. I mean, what do they actually think in their heads? Yep. Yes. The answer is yes. They absolutely think that war in space at some point is inevitable. Uh, maybe not the next conflict. Right. Um, but, you know, they see it as no different to any other domain. Airlines see in space. They also see, for their point of view, information as a separate domain that is equal to those other ones. And we can get into that. And that's the, that's the purview again of the SSF. But they absolutely think that uh, conflict in space is, is inevitable, and they are planning both offense and defense for that and using all means uh, at their disposal, right? And that's why they're very heavily invested in some uh, some high-tech uh, high things that uh, you know we wouldn't have uh, thought about investing in 10, 15 years ago because we didn't have a pure adversary in space. Yeah, I'll mention that with, with one of those examples is the now former deputy of the Central Military Commission, that said that, you know, war in space is inevitable. It's a historical certainty and we cannot go back backwards from that. You know, that's not just a standard, you know, person writing an article. That's that's a pretty big guy. Um, and I'm not sure if he's retired now or, or if he's moved up. I haven't seen any his name in a while. But but, you know, I think that's something that we should be you know play, paying close attention to. And having speeches or or policy statements that come out and basically say that, you know, we both think the same thing, that, you know, war in space is not inevitable, which is one of the things that was in the speech, that war in, in space with China is not inevitable. That's good. It's good to say we don't want war in space. That's one thing. But to say it's not and have your adversary, their words, say that it is. <laughs> And see the ODNI's um, worldwide threat assessment, which has also been improving, I might add, you know, sharing a little bit more every year about some of the stuff that they're testing and, and deploying. Uh, and as Brendan mentioned, you know, that includes everything from kinetic interceptors, ground-based lasers, high-powered microwaves, um, orbital ASATs, and as I mentioned earlier, some space-to-ground munitions that could be either conventional or nuclear. So they're they're not they're not playing for second fiddle. They're they're definitely wanting to be the top dog. Um, they're not a status quo power. They're a revisionist power is the phrase that we like to use. Um, and so as a result, I think it's it's something definitely that should be taken seriously. And I think that, that mixed signals doesn't really help help but, a whole lot. But Chris, you know, I hate I'll to jump in. I'll just give a shameless Wait. plug here. We've got uh, Kristen Go. Burke is working on a year-long study uh, for Chinese counterspace. So uh, that'll be done uh, hopefully late fall, uh, you know, maybe November. Uh, but looking at this very specific topic, because it is so important, because they've come so far, and because we need to do a better job corporately here in the United States thinking about these challenges. I love shameless plugs. 
And Chris, you're not <laughs> off the hook. Listen, you know, it, I think it was the CSO who said that war in space with China is is not inevitable and that it's that it's avoidable and 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 that. But the thing is, and this is probably was a counter to what the Chinese had said that it is historically that's a historical you know inevitability. Well, what should the CSO have done instead? Do you think? Well, it, it was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy that, Whoops, that stated sorry, that. Sorry, I got that. No, wrong, no, it's okay. Because it, I just okay. think I just I know I re- I heard it and I just can't remember where. I'm sorry, everybody. No worries. Yeah, there's so many people talking, so it's it, sometimes it's hard to keep track of everybody. But I what I would have I thought would have been a great opportunity is to say, you know, this is what Chinese think. You know, this is what we, the United States, think in return. And similar to what the chief of space operations has said, while we we don't want to see that happen, and I might add as a side note, um, the deputy of the vice CSO, General Thompson, has said that we've been we're under attack essentially every day on the low threshold level. So the whole idea about you know warfare, warfare is happening. War in the sense of you know, a state of on state conflict. Yeah, yeah. a state on state conflict. Okay, you know, we can we can have that discussion about, you know, how do you define if you're really at war or not? But as as someone who's been an operator on the on the back end of a computer screen watching stuff and a, a policy guy, I, you know, to me, if you're being hit every day by various things on the low threshold and you're saying that, you know, oh, this is not like 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 it's a future problem. You know, that that doesn't send a good signal that you're taking it seriously. And from the last 15 years or so, a lot of times when things do happen, we have a tendency to to miss the opportunity to say we won't tolerate this and we will be prepared and we will do the following if you do this. It's the usual deterrence back and forth. But instead, we send out these uh, press releases that say, you know, they're there, you bad behaving person. Um, you know, it's, it just seems very odd when, when this would be a better opportunity for them to say to Congress, hey, this is why we have a space command and a space force. This is why we need the ability to to counter this. And, and just saying that we can, and another thing that he said was that I've had a problem with is we, we're going to be able to take hits. Well, if you're taking hits, you're not deterring anything. And the whole idea of a defense system or a deterrent is to prevent from taking hits in the first place. And because of the integrated nature of space into everything um, and how important it is from a psychological, economic, military standpoint, the Chinese have a, a good set of options with which how to deal with that. So I just don't think that kind of discussion helps. And I think it would be better to say, this is why we have a space force is to counter this kind of thing. They believe that this is this is inevitable. Therefore, we should prepare for it and deter it from happening in the first place, rather than saying, this is not going to happen, because you can't say that. And you can't say that that people have peacefully coexisted on air, land, and sea for centuries, because that's not true either. You know, we have a Navy because people don't get along on the oceans, and people try to cause problems with sea lines of communication. People have had, have had, had quarrels for over land, so we have armies. And then, of course, air has been a key approach to all the above. So it just, I think whoever writes the next speech should consider some of these historical facts before they put them into a speech that sounds a little too Pollyannish, if you will, and and uses it more as a as a tool uh, of deterrence rather than 
who knows? <laughs> but I, I, I just think it could have been, I could have been much better, and I think it was a, a missed opportunity, and it might have even harmed our our strategic communication, at least in the short term. And now back to the shameless plug, you know, Brendan, just to get to your organization's recent report. I wanted to dig in. The recent report was on uh, the strategic uh, relationship that's forming between Russia and China in the space domain. And I, I was just sort of thinking, you know, I can understand why Russia, with its struggling economy and a withering space program, wants a closer relationship with China's economy and its space programs. I mean, they do have an, a space station, a national space station on orbit that is growing. But what does China get out of it? Well, so we need to remember that China has only recently kind of become the big brother in that relationship. Uh, you know, the Russians, for all the problems that they suffered uh, post-91, have maintained a fairly strong, robust uh, space capability. Space, and, and, You know, let's be honest, the only way Americans were getting to the space station were on rocket uh, Russian rockets, right? True, uh, but those right. rockets now spring leaks. Uh, true, <laughs> right? But, so I said it's only been recently, so there has been a change, but... So Russia has maintained, uh, especially in technology, especially in rockets, uh, and also kind of goes to aerospace engines and things like that. Uh, you know, there are some places where the Russian technical capability uh, is still on par with the, the leaders of the world. Um, China, like I said, overall has kind of become the big brother in that relationship. Uh, but there is still absolutely a give and take. The other thing that China gets out of it is somebody else of like mind. Right. So when the U.S. comes out and says, hey, we're going to do these Artemis Accords uh, and we want people to sign up for it. And the Chinese are like, "Ooh, I don't like that because that, that's going to infringe on what I want to do. They look around and they need somebody to kind of back them up. Uh, and Russia, for geostrategic reasons, uh, is uh, is a perfect partner for that. So, again, it's not uh, it's not a long, uh, deep, loving relationship like we have with the Brits or the Aussies, uh, you know, uh, or anything and the like Kiwis. that. Y- yeah. And, yeah, and we can and and who are those folks at the north? But anyway, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, so it's not that kind of a deep relationship, uh, but it is one of uh, strategic overlap. It is one of uh, you know converging strategic interests, uh, and they are still both getting stuff out of it, uh, be it technical or or um, uh, or access uh, or just like I said, international support for a different way of looking at things. I think I'll, I'll just throw in something here, Laura. I, I have a theory. I haven't looked into it, so it may be totally wrong. But one of the things that a lot of authors over the years have talked about with regard to China and, let's say, North Korea is that the only reason why they support North Korea is it gives it gives us, the United States, something to be distracted by while they're off pursuing their strategic objectives to, to displace the United States and become the top dog. Um, adding the Russians and the Iranians to the mix where you have someone keeping things you know, active and interesting in the Middle East, another one keeping things active and interesting in Europe. While the Chinese, you know, just provide, you know, information sharing like their joint space situational awareness uh, cooperative agreement where pretty much China is providing probably the most of the information because of a lot of their their Russian satellites have have not been all that great, although they're trying to to build more. But the Chinese have been launching way more of those kinds of of systems than than the Russians. And so I, I would just say that I think that's a possibility, too, that they're that they're leveraging it as a strategic Thing, they know we have equities everywhere, and they're working on trying to find a way to, you know, maybe the maybe the Sun Tzu death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. We'll see. But that's just a thought that popped in my head while you guys were discussing that. And then the other thing is, I would say, you know, 
they need money. So, and, and the Chinese being the second, still, I think they're still the second largest economy, um, even though they're they're somewhat plateauing or people have been saying that for the last couple of years, you know, they still have the ability to influence nations um, all over the place with Belt and Road and other things, which is now encircling and even coming into the Western Hemisphere. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this activity is is because they see a strategic benefit. Otherwise, they wouldn't be going back to the people that they leaned away from toward us in the early 70s. Now, as it's May, it would be kind of good to take a look back to a year ago when it was reported that China was looking for a way to turn SpaceX's Starlink satellites into, well, orbiting paperweights with a systems attack, right? It's ostensibly unnerved by how Ukraine has used the Starlink system in its effort to kick Russia off its territory. And the thinking is Taiwan could also have access to Starlink to resist a Chinese invasion. But China is also looking to deploy its own version of Starlink. And recently, Blaine Curcio in Space Ref reported that China's central leading group for inspection work, which manages party discipline for the Chinese Communist Party, is investigating the very companies that are working on China's version of Starlink. And those companies are, just for the record, China Satellite Networks Limited, along with China Electronics and Technology Corporation. And the China Electronics Corporation, they are also all large and all state-owned. And in the report, Curcio says the inspection announcement you know, the, the report that says why they're actually going there to, quote unquote, inspect, that the focus, quote, the focus of the visit is to report and reflect on violations of political discipline, organizational discipline, integrity discipline, mass discipline, work discipline, and life discipline. Allegedly, there's even a hotline for employees to call if they want to report such discipline violations. Gentlemen, what is going on here? What does this say to you? And what's the message being transmitted here? Well, to me, it's just part of uh, Xi Jinping uh, exercising uh, his role as general secretary to make sure that everyone is well aware that the party is the lead, right? So whether you are commercial, whether you are academic, uh, or part of the government, he is using all all lovers available to him to reinforce the role of the party uh, and the influence of the party, and that's going to continue to be, uh, like I said, both in the commercial realm as well as in the government realm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, but I don't know what the this specific- actually. I mean, this has feelings of like the cultural revolution, like you know, report on your bosses and coworkers that they don't have well life discipline, maybe. Well, part of it is also, you know, probably linked to the the anti-corruption drive, right? And I I tell people that Xi Jinping, in, in his heart of hearts, uh, you know, is a true red communist, and he thinks that the Communist Party is the way, the truth, and the light. Uh, it is the way that the Chinese people uh, reach the Chinese dream, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people to become the center of the world stage, right? And at the end of the day, he wants the party to be clean and strong enough to be able to lead the Chinese people. So that's his, I'm not saying I agree with it, but that's his view of life, right? Uh, and so this is very well uh, tied to that, uh, that these SOEs uh, or the management there wasn't performing up to spec or had some sort of issue 
um, you know, wasn't doing what they were supposed to. Who knows what the, the real reason behind it is, but it is simply another demonstration of we're the party, we will lead you, and you will do what we say. It's very much, you know, kind of like the Jack Ma. Jack Ma spoke out of turn, they canceled the SO, uh, the IPO, uh, and then he kind of, you know, uh, went, in, <laughs> went into a forced vacation for several months. Uh, and meanwhile, they broke apart Ant Group. Uh, so I suspect this is something very similarly related to that uh, without, you know, diving, diving too deep into the details. But that's my that's my overall suspicion. Yeah. And I'll, I'll also add that, you know, this is something that, you know, as Brendan mentioned, is, is not necessarily a new thing. In fact, I remember um, several years ago, one of the old uh, old China hands, as they called themselves, would talk about how that a lot of these a lot of these corporations, if not all of them, have have a red phone that goes straight to their their party boss. And if a CEO of sorts uh, gets a little too big for himself, or gets a little too influential, or a little too powerful, then they will call him and either you know pull him back in line or replace him with somebody else. And so there's been a lot of that in the in the space world over the last couple of years, um, not just these, these organizations, but, you know, I, I know that the article mentioned something about, they think this is a politically important project and it, it probably is. Um, but, but like Brennan was saying, you know, this is something that they do all the time. And I was looking around trying to find my governance of China by Xi Jinping book, because one of the things that he says in a lot of it is that was his one of his main goals coming in is to clean the party up, like Brennan said, of of the corruption, which in many ways, a lot of people just say that's just a, a, a reason to push people out who are threatening his power base. Um, and since he sort of consolidated his power as sort of like the new Mao in some people's views that, you know, I'm not really surprised by this, <laughs> but it's definitely something to continue watching and understanding that, you know, this is not abnormal necessarily for uh, the Xi Jinping China. Gentlemen, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for coming back on the downlink. Thanks very much. Yeah, this has been great. Hopefully it won't be uh, quite as long next time because, uh, as you know, it's a rapidly changing space. So, uh, you know, let's do this again soon. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.